I'd invite you to turn to an Old Testament passage. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 7, a familiar one. I'll begin reading at verse 11 from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now that might be a little hard to find, so I'm going to help you. If you can find books like Joshua and Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings over in the Old Testament, just keep on going to the right, and you'll find Second Chronicles. We've been talking some. Um, God has kind of laid on my heart a burden to uh, preach concerning revival, revival in our time, revival need in our own heart. I heard a man say this week that uh, he had pastor, he pastored a church in Woodland, Colorado, and he said that he and his men prayed every morning at six o'clock, seven days a week, for two years for God to send revival to his church. Seven days a week, six o'clock in the morning, he and his men met to pray that God would revive them and their church. And I, I feel a real urging, an urgency to speak to this matter of personal revival. And I agree with the man who said that, that the only thing that's going to keep us from being a reproach to God from the time now until Jesus comes is a revival, personal revival in our heart and a corporate revival in the church. Well, let's look at verse 11, and you follow as I read. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's palace and successfully completed all that he had planned on doing in the house of the Lord and in his palace. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and the if is understood, and if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Then, he said, when the conditions are met, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, I want to do something that I did the last two Sundays. I want to ask you the question, because some of you might be here for the first time and you missed the test. How many of you believe that we need a revival in America? Show of hands. Everybody lifts their hand to that. And besides, it'll help us get a little warmer, to get a little active. How many of us, how many believe that we need revival in your church? You need revival in your church. You lift your hand. How many of us believe that we need a revival personally? You need revival. How many of you believe that? And that's just about the same number. The most crucial question of all, what's keeping it from happening? I mean, where's the bottleneck? Who's the culprit that keeps that from occurring? 
is the um, sovereignty of God such that God just says, I'm going to move in time and in history when I please, regardless of what man does? Or is the sovereignty of God so related to man and the will of man that God says, I will if you will? Well, I believe that uh, history, religious history at least, confirms the fact that that God is waiting to give revival when the right conditions are met. I mean, when everything is just right, God is standing out in the wings and He'll step in and do here for man what we something for which we can never take the credit. And I'm absolutely convinced that Charles Finney was right. He said, we can have revival at any time And God just stands out in the wings ready to step in. When man does his homework, God does his office work. And God works and and acts and moves upon a prepared altar. A group of college students decided they wanted to uh, smuggle to keep keep the uh, football team mascot a goat. And so they devised this intricate plan to smuggle that goat into the dormitory room, knowing that if they got caught, they'd probably be put on probation. And so they worked this intricate plan out. And one of them said, well, well what about the smell? And, and the other said, well, the goat will just have to get used to it. That's all there is to it. And I have a feeling sometimes that that, that we think God is just going to have to get used to it, you know. I mean, He's just going to have to get used to our inconsistency. He, he's just going to have to get used to our unfaithfulness and, and our, um, our lack of commitment. God's just going to have to get used to that because we're not going to change. And, 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 and I think some of us have the idea that He will get used to it. I mean, he's, He'll get used to it. He'll, he'll get accustomed to our inconsistency and our apathy and our unfaithfulness, and He'll, he'll bless us anyway. Well, wrong again. It just happens that God will not get used to that. And, and sometimes God just moves out of a church and writes Ichabod over the door, the glory of the Lord hath departed. And he leaves that church to become what R.G. Lee calls drifting sepulchers manned by frozen crews. Well, this passage gives us a clue to God's blessing of His people. They had just finished the the building of the temple and everything was glorious. This new building was made. And God said, I have chosen to make this my dwelling place. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be among you. But if you get off the track, He's saying, implied at least, I may send pestilence and famine into the land. But if that occurs and if my people, and he describes the conditions, then he says, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive sin, and I will heal your land. God's promise is this, I will forgive your sin and heal you on these conditions. And he describes them. Now it seems to me that if we discover the conditions that are there, that that will cause the blessing of God upon a people. We might discover the bottleneck 
that prevents God from doing among us those miraculous things we've heard about and dreamed about and prayed about and read about. So look at them with me. First of all, he says, if my people who are called by my name, you know, it's always somebody else, you know. Revival responsibility always rests on somebody else, you know. If old so-and-so, if the deacons, if so-and-so did this and that, uh, then revival would come. Somebody's always saying to me, if the deacons, you know, would deacon, everything would go like that, then we'd have revival. It's always somebody else. And we do all of this corporate praying, you know. Lord, we need revival. Our church needs revival. But if we get down to business, it's my people, these people who are here in this congregation this morning, you and you and me. And when we really get down to business, to, to, to the discovery of revival in our time, that is God moving, we begin to no longer pray in a corporate sense. Lord, our church needs revival. We need revival. We begin to pray, Lord, I need revival. I've drifted away. I'm, I'm cold. I'm unfaithful. I'm apathetic. There has been an erosion of my relationship. Oh, Lord, revive me. And I think there's more in the, there, are, there are more things involved in these phrases than just the identification of those on whom the responsibility of revival rests. There's some implication in, in these phrases. And, and I believe that if we discover what he's talking about here, what's involved in the statement, if my people who are called by my name, we'll discover the kind of people God delights to bless. Let's look at these. First of all, there are people with a childlike confidence. Read this in the Hebrew, from a Hebrew lexicon, and it means, if my children, and it's a father term, if my children. A number of years ago, I um, went to the convention in St. Louis, and I took my children with me. Now, Todd was about four, and Cindy was about 11. Michelle hadn't even been born. My mother said, oh, Gerald, he said, so you're such a good boy to take your children with you to the convention. It's something they'll never forget. I said, well, they may forget it, but I guarantee you I'll never forget that experience. Four, two children at a convention in St. Louis. Now, when I got ready to go to St. Louis, that's a pretty big city. I made out my, I planned my map, and I got everything like I was going to get, you know, how to get there. Big city. Got reservations in the Holiday Inn downtown. Didn't know, you know, one, never been there, how to get there. And uh, got lost a couple of times trying to make it to the Holiday Inn downtown. The next day we decided we're going to do a little sightseeing, go out to the, you know, the arcs, the gateway to the west to St. Louis and all that. Got on this freeway, got completely lost. I knew I was going in the wrong direction because I was getting further and further away from the arch. You know, that didn't make sense unless the thing completely came around. I didn't look for that to happen. So I, I cut off the freeway and got out into a high crime part of, of St. Louis. I mean, it was wild. It was during the time of the, you know, the riots and everything. Everywhere there were burnt buildings and everything. I, you know, I like to never got out of there. But you know, in planning to go to St. Louis, you know, uh, Cindy never one time said to me, "Dad, you know, do you know how to get there? You've never been to St. Louis, Dad. You, you sure you can make it? Um, you got reservations, Dad, in downtown St. Louis? You know where that is? You've never been there." What if we get to St. Louis and there are no reservations? What are we going to do, sleep in the car? 
Have you ever been to the archway, Dad? What if we get lost and get in one of those high crime areas of St. Louis and get in trouble, have a flat or something, can't get out of there? Not one time did she ever say that. You know why? Because she had just put herself in a childlike relationship with her father. That's what he means by, if my people. I want to remind you of something. You remember that story of the feeding of the 5,000? And Jesus looked over there at Philip. He said, where are we going to get the food for all these folks? Where are we going to get the payment for all of this? Philip said, kind of scratched his head. He said, I, I tell you what, Lord, if we pooled everything we've got, wouldn't be enough for everybody to have a crumb. You know what, you know what Philip was doing? He was reckoning the problem in light of his bank account and his resources. He was doing what any atheist does. I mean, you can go to any atheist and ask him, what are we going to, how can we uh, handle this big, these big debts that we have and all these kinds of things? And the atheist will sit down and he'll say, well, if you do this and that and this and that, and if you, you know, have this kind of building program and all this kind of fundraising, I believe you can handle it. Do what any atheist would do. You see, Philip was acting, was a professing Christian, but he was a practicing atheist. And Andrew came up to him and said, Well, Lord, I tell you, there's a little boy here that's been driving me crazy. Read that in the Greek New Testament sometime. This little boy is about to tear my cloak off. He's got five loaves and two fishes. And, I, and, and just to keep him from bugging me any longer, Lord, I told him I'd bring him here. And, and a little boy said, I've got five loaves and two fishes. You know what he was doing? He was putting himself in the same relationship with Jesus that Jesus had put himself in with the Father. Manly Beasley reminds us that Jesus, watch this, that Jesus never one time performed one miracle in the New Testament. You say, hold it there. No, no, he really didn't. You get to looking at that. Jesus was just the body, the instrument that God used to perform miracles in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus said... I can't do anything apart from the Father. I don't do anything apart from the Father. He was just the human body that God used to perform the miracle. You know what? God is the same God wanting to do the same thing in this day. He just wants to use a different body. He wants to do the same thing He did with Jesus. He just wants to use a different body. He wants to use you and me. You see, this church, this body of Christ... All He wants us to do is to put ourselves in the same relationship to the Father that He put in Himself in relationship to the Father. I think I can give you an Old Testament illustration. There came the Philistines against the Israelites to do war. And the Israelites came out to do battle against the Philistines. They said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll choose that one man. You pick a man, we'll pick a man, we'll do battle. And they picked Goliath, I mean giant and these Israelites looked at him, Tidwell translation, wow, they said, look at that guy. Golly, what? They said, look at him. I mean, he was huge. We can't go up against him. They were saying, you know what they were saying? They were saying, look how big he is compared to us. And this little old boy came in from the field. His name was David with a, with a, with a slingshot and a few rocks. And he looked at Goliath. You know what he said? He said, wow. Look how little he is compared to God. You know what God is waiting to do? 
God is waiting to step in out of the wings and do in your life and in your church and in, and, and in this community something for which man cannot take the credit. And you know what he's waiting for? He's just waiting for us to put ourselves in the same relationship to him that Jesus did. Childlike confidence. There's a second thing that's involved in those phrases, and it's, a, it's this. It's, it's, it's people who have a godlike character. He said, if my people who are called by my name... Now, a name represented a person. It told what the person was and told what the person did in the Old Testament. So they gave names to, to, to describe the character and, 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 the, and the action, the nature of a person. It's kind of like saying, well, he's one of, one of those Tidwell boys or he's one of those Smith children. You know, it's, it, it identifies you with, with that person, what that person's like, what that person does, how that person acts. If my people are like me, if my people look like me, they're called by my name, if they look like me, if they represent me, don't you... Don't you sometimes feel that God might like to say, as Alexander, that old story about Alexander the Great who caught one of his officers in a crime and he brought him in and said, what's your name? He said, Alexander. He said, man, change your name or change your way. It, it, it means that we are people like God, are we? I mean, if God wants to move into this church and act like himself, can he do it with us? Are we that much like him? Charlie Howard, who was teacher at Bowie's Creek, uh, Campbell College in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina, said he was raised by his step-grandmother. She died. His mother died when he was born. His step-grandmother raised him. She died when he was a child, just a baby, a little one. And, and, and so he was kind of nurtured and cared for by a Negro mammy. He said, when I got up and got out of school, I went off and it was gone like 30 or 40 years. I hadn't seen that woman he said, I came back to the area where she lived and went to see her. He said, of course, she was old and gray and her hands were gnarled like the roots of an old tree. He said, I went up and stood on her porch, knocked on her door. This old, frail, worn-out Negro mammy came to the door. He said, I spoke to her and said, you know who I am? He, she said, well, let me get out in the light. I'm almost blind. He said, he got out on, she got out on the steps, took my face in the hands, those old hands kind of helped me so, up to the light so she could see. And she said, well, bless God. You're Charlie Howard's boy. I'd have recognized you anywhere. I see the resemblance. Are you one of God's boys? Can they see the resemblance? I, I mean, I, I think Billy Graham might be right that the greatest mission field for evangelism might, might, might be right in the church. I mean, why aren't we like him? You remember reading over in the book of Acts chapter 11, it says that, that there were added to the Lord, added to the Lord, those who were being saved. What we like to do is we like to add Lord, the Lord to us. Our prayer is, Lord, we accept you. We invite you to come into our life. And, and I suppose that's theologically correct. But what we might be saying is, Lord, you're acceptable to me. Okay, I accept you. Let me tell you, there's more than that. There's more to it than that. It's more than just telling God that he's acceptable to you. Have you become acceptable to him? 
I mean, have you been added to His life? Has there been the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within you? Have you made a total commitment of your life to Him? Are you one of His children? If my people who are called by my name, it means a childlike confidence and a God-like character. It means a father-like compassion. Now, what do you know most about God? Let, let me ask you to fill in the blank. You, 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 fill, you, you finish the sentence. Um, and say it out loud if you don't mind. Okay? God is... You fill in the blank. Okay, you think about it a minute. God is... Say the word. Okay? How many of you said love? God is love. That's right. Okay. When, when we think about God, most of us think, you know, of that uh, attribute of His nature that God is love, and that's right. Okay, now, if we use, you know, the common denominator of that, let, let me ask you this. Let me ask you a question. Question. Are you people of love? Do they know you by your love? Do you have a God-like, Father-like compassion? If God is love... And, and, and a person that has never heard of your father, your heavenly father, doesn't know anything about him, and you go up to him and say, I'll tell you what, now, you, you've never heard of my father. I want you to know my father. He's just like me. I, I, I'm a pretty good representation of him. Would they think immediately that God is love? A professor at the seminary said that one morning he started to uh, go just to begin the class, and they were getting ready to have prayer. And one of the per people in the class uh, stood up and said, before we have prayer, could, could, I, could I request a, a special prayer? He said, let me tell you what happened to, to, to me uh, last week. He said, uh, I work as a checker in a grocery store here in Fort Worth. And he said, the other day I was checking out this elderly lady and she came by me and, and she said, uh, when, I, when I gave her her change and, and sacked her groceries, she said, uh, have you noticed, uh, young man, that I always come by you, come through your, your, your check stand? And he said, no, I really didn't. I, I see you here all the time, but I didn't, I didn't notice that you always waited until, until I could check you out. She said, let me tell you why. She said, when you give him my change, you always touch me. You always touch my hand. And she said... I'm an old woman. I'm 87 years old. So my kids live way off and they hardly ever come to see me. And she said, you know, sometimes you're the only person for days that ever touches me. And, and I, I just love to come through your check stand because you always touch me. And, and she began to cry. And the seminary student said, he, he began to cry. So I pulled off my glasses and said, we were over there just crying. He said, the manager came running up. What's the problem here? He said, what's going on here? He said, we, we told the manager the story, and the manager started crying. <laughs> and he said, after the little old lady went on out the door, he said, we all kind of had a cry. He said, all right, checkers, butcher, everybody to the back. He said, we all went to the back. He locked the door. He said, from now on, he said, we're not just in the business of selling groceries. We're in the business of loving people. What is our business here in First Baptist Church? What is the business? We, we come streaming out of these classrooms, you know, on Sunday morning. Some that's, some, for some, that's the only time you're related to this church. 
What is our business? Let me tell you what our business is. Our business is loving people. And if we're not doing that, we need to go out of business. We ain't got one. Now God is saying, when my people, when my people become, begin to have a, cry, a childlike confidence in me and look to me, and they begin to have this God-like character that represents me and this father-like compassion, then he said, I'll heal their land and I'll bless them. Well, we, we're through point one. Almost past the introduction. So hang on, I will quit at time, but I may not be through. With a little encouragement, I might go a little bit over. I probably won't get that encouragement. Second, he said, if they will, if you will, if I will, humble, humble themselves, he said. Humble themselves. Means to come to the end of self. It means to confront in reality our total inadequacy. Humble themselves. It means to say to God, God, I can't, but you never said I could. God, you can, and you promised that you would. i say it again. A humble man, a person with that kind of humility says, God, I can't, but you never said I could. You can, and you promised that you would. Now let me remind you again of that story of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus turned to Philip and said, where are we going to get the money to feed this crowd? And then the author gives us a little postscript and says he knew what he was going to do. He just asked Philip that to test him. You know why he asked him that question? It's why there are so many question marks in our life. Watch this. Because Jesus wanted Philip to come face to face with his own inadequacy. Peter said, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time, that he may exalt you in due time. What he means is this, that God never exalts us, never brings glory to us, never does in our midst what only God can do until we're ready for it. And so Moses spent 40 years out there humbled into the mighty hand of God. And Joseph spent at least 13 years humbled under the mighty hand of God before he put him on the throne. It's when people humble themselves, come to the end of self, come to their own inadequacy. Now, I'm not talking about this false humility where a guy goes around beating himself with a humble stick. Like Reiner said, never says in the Bible that a person who is humble is a person who becomes a doormat. But he said some people feel that they're not humble until they let everybody walk on them and the word step on me, step on me seems to be etched across their forehead. Can you imagine Jesus acting like that? I can't. And yet he said, learn of me as the song has been, learn of me for I'm meek and lowly of heart. It's the only thing he ever said about himself, that he was humble. Phillips Brooks said the way to become humble is not to stoop until you're littler than yourself, but to stand at your own height beside a higher nature. Then you'll recognize what is the smallness of your greatness. Oh, God, we say. 
I need you. I'm, hum- I- I- I'm dependent upon you. Humble yourself. So we need to lay aside our self-sufficiency and our arrogancy and our pride. One last thing, then I'll quit. It's not the end, but I will quit. He says, humble themselves and pray. I'm not real sure if we have settled the issue of prayer yet. I don't think we have. I don't think we've settled the issue of prayer I don't believe that we really believe that more things are wrought by prayer than the world ever dreamed of. I don't believe that we spend enough time in prayer. I don't. I don't believe that. I don't believe I do. I don't believe you do. I don't believe that we're people of prayer. Now, it's not possible that we pray all the time, but it is gloriously possible to develop the Godward look We've not settled the issue of prayer. Somebody told me one time, he said, I had a pastor. He said, the only knock that some of the folks had in the church about him was that he spent too much time in prayer. I thought I'd heard it all. My pastor spends too much time in prayer. I I don't know how you do that, spend too much time in prayer. I don't think we settle the issue of prayer. If we spend as much time in prayer as we... And so the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to sing. No, they didn't say that. I read recently that Bill Gaither, and I'm not knocking Bill Gaither, he's, one of my, he's my favorite. They came and rented a concert hall in one of the large cities in Texas and sold that sucker out for a concert. Over 5,000 people there. But you rent the same concert, call on the same people together for prayer for revival. You might have 50 show up. And the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to work up a sermon. No, they didn't say that. Teach us how to teach the Sunday school class. No, they didn't say that. They came to Jesus and they said, teach us what is the vital factor of life. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Sometimes the lessons that God has to bring into our life to teach us to pray are devastating. You believe in the priesthood of the believer? The priesthood of the believer is that great doctrine of New Testament Christianity that says that every man has, got a, has, a, has the right and privilege to go to God with one hand to the people with the other. You know, the priesthood of the believer has become the priesthood of the pastor. When every one of you have access into the holiest of holies yourself by the rent veil and the shed blood and the crucified Christ. We haven't settled the issue of prayer. And it seems to me that if we really believed that this world was headed on a collision course like we see on television of all the devastation that is predicted for our land in our lifetime, if we really believe that, it would be hard not to pray. pastor said out in West Texas, you remember 1980's drought, don't you? He said, we went for 18 months in this little town where I lived without rain. It was an agricultural community and said we our farmers would 
or were going out of business. They were losing everything. And he said, it got desperate enough that we decided, the community decided, to have a prayer meeting for rain. Isn't that about the way it works if it gets desperate enough? So he said, my church was the largest building in town. And so we met, we set up a time, we're going to meet in my church building, pray for rain. He said, we got there and people were coming and there's a good community gathering leaders of other churches coming in there and we were all, you know, just you know, meeting everybody and greeting with everybody and everybody was talking about, we'll get here in a minute and we'll pray for rain. He said, about that time, a car drove up out in front of the church and a, and a mother, a woman, let a little boy out. He's about 10. When he stepped out of the car, he was dressed with full rain slicker. I mean, he had one of these yellow rain slickers. <laughs> had that sucker on all the way down to his... Down to his uh, ankles, had a rain hat on and galoshers. He got out of the car, started in the church. Everybody kind of laughed. Preacher said, I thought, well, that's a, that's a great little break of tension. You know, everybody could have a little laugh and get relaxed for prayer time. The little boy came in, just kept his rain slicker on, had his hat on, galoshers. Got inside, he said, we prayed for rain. He said, oh, I, I kind of remember some little feeble, childlike voice saying, Lord Jesus, would you send us rain? He said, we all went home. Everybody's feeling good about praying for rain. He said, that night, about midnight. He said, I sat straight up in the bed. There was this clap of thunder. Hadn't heard for 18 months. And he said, I looked outside and the whole sky was just lightning and, and the lightning was flashing and, and thunder was rolling. He said, I got my wife up. He said, we were just kind of rejoicing. It's raining. We, we prayed for rain and it's raining. And he said, God, like one of those lightning bolts, just spoke to my heart and said, if you think you had one thing to do with this rain, you're mistaken. That little boy with the rain slicker. If my people, just my people, not old Joe Blow evangelist, or that guy lives next door down the street that you've been witnessing, not them, you and me. If my people call by my name, humble themselves and pray, seek my face. You can't seek God's face if you turned your back on Him. Seek my face. It means that to let the shining countenance of the Lord be the treasure of one's life. Turn from their wicked ways. That means repentance. Then I'll forgive and heal. And so the guy, the mother, listen, I'm through, I promise. The mother sent her daughter to school with the birth certificate. And she said, now honey, it's important that you not lose this thing. You be sure it's important that you have this birth certificate. They need it at school, and it's the only one we've got. Don't lose it. You guessed it. She lost it. She's sitting on the steps of the schoolhouse, and the janitor came. She's crying. He said, what, honey, what is go what's wrong? And the little girl said, I lost my excuse from being born. Folks, if you've lost the fullness of God's presence and blessing in your life, 
you've lost your excuse for being born again. Let's pray together.